Welcome to Idol Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host, Rob Zachney, to wind down another week. And this week, we're also joined by Heather Alexandra of Zam and Polygon and Paste and all kinds of other amazing places. Welcome to the show, Heather. Hi. It's so great to be here. It's an absolute privilege. I'm incredibly excited. Oh. We're excited, too, because this week, uh, sorry, this weekend, we're going to be talking about something that sort of plagues or is just sort of a part of major game franchises right now. Basically, the fact that all game franchises, or most of them, feel the need to just sort of top themselves endlessly. And it's sort of like feature creep, but on a pandemic level in our industry. And Rob, I know this has been spurned on from the the Warhammer, the Dawn of War 3 announcement and sort of uh, other games, you know, Call of Duty, the new Call of Duty being sort of like, we're going to space. Like all of this seems to be sort of conflating and, and keep, you know, endlessly, endlessly sort of spiraling out of control this week. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because uh, actually I think there's there's interesting parallels between the Dawn of War 3 sort of reveal trailer and announcements that came out this week and then what we saw happen with uh, Call of Duty, Yeah, uh, which is that you know, any sort of successful franchise has to up the ante each time. And I think, I don't think anybody has, pa- has painted themselves into, into more of a corner <laughs> than the teams that have worked on the Call of Duty series, right? Like, it yeah. started as a sort of semi-plausible-ish, like, World War II shooter. And then starting with, like, Modern Warfare... Uh, it, it's like, okay, we just, we, we just killed a, we just killed the protagonist and blew up a nuke at once. <laughs> That's amazing. And then each time out now, you, it has to be the new craziest damn thing you've ever seen. And, you know, so it's, it's been on this, it's been on this, this trajectory where it's like, well, I guess, you know, we've, we've pretty much milked the, the war on terror, uh, as <laughs> for everything it's worth, at least as we, in its modern iteration. What if we added like battle suits, uh, to that? What if we threw those into the mix? Well, okay. The battle suits, people, people like the battle suits. That's cool. Um, I guess we can't do any more war on earth. So space, space war. Yep. Uh, and, and the, the hilarious thing about the trailer is it's still, it's still so, it's still, still so quintessentially a Call of Duty game, right? Like somehow, somehow mankind has gone into space, colonized the planet. The, the colonists have apparently become space terrorists, <laughs> striking back at the mother country. <laughs> uh, but, but so it's like, man, we have, we have gone, we have, we've gone into space. Amazing. Space is the new greatest threat America has ever known. <laughs> it's like wow, <laughs> that, that that didn't take long at all. Uh, so I, I thought that was that was interesting. But then at the very end of that trailer, uh, it it also flashes like you're you're getting modern warfare remastered, right? And it's 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 like it, it cuts to clips from that like incredibly like the incredibly recognizable moments of of modern warfare and i actually think like a lot of people seemed almost more excited by by that by revisiting that game yes uh than than they were by by infinite warfare uh which which is a title that sounds more like a threat uh than than a a promise yeah um you will play that game forever (laughs) it's it's like the joker right dangling off the side of the building you and me are gonna be doing this a long time (laughs) 
so true. So true. And and yeah, I feel like the whole hype about it has been, oh my God, remember that game from almost 10 years ago that I can't believe was almost 10 years ago? Let's play that again, which is funny in its own way, because of course, as you were saying, that was kind of the first one that was this bombastic, like of a, of a, you know, Michael Bay film of a game, basically. Uh, which, which seems to be what's really happening here. And probably a lot of this sort of, uh, you know, reason why these games keep kind of upping the ante because they're aping a lot of sort of the beats of action movies, which are also becoming so hilariously over the top all the time. <laughs> like, oh my God, we didn't explode San Francisco hard enough. Let's do, <laughs> you know, like how, how else can we get rid of the Golden Gate Bridge in a more extreme way? You know, it's, it's very, God, it's almost funny how reflexive it is in in certain ways. It it almost seems like it's easier to to, to build hype for a sequel if your last game wasn't very good uh, or sure. if it wasn't very yeah. popular, right? Because then you can always at least promise that you're going you're you're sort of kicking it old school. And I think that's sort of what is happening with Dawn of War three, where where you've kind of got Relic going out there and saying, "Yeah, remember remember Dawn of War two? Fuck that game. <laughs> it's kind of like we're going back to we're we're making we're going back to Dawn of War One. We're going back to sort of the something maybe that's a little more Company of Heroes uh, than Dawn of War Two, which was this really really weird mix of of like RTS, but it's like RTS on 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 rails. Uh, was, was kind of the way that campaign was structured. Uh, and it, it, it's getting, and then there was also this weird Diablo aspect, uh, to, to Dawn of War 2. And now it's much more of a traditional, like, okay, we're, we're going to go back to what we were originally doing, which is a 40k, uh, RTS, which wouldn't be exciting if this was just the third one of these they were making. But mm. instead, they've kind of flipped the script and been like, yeah, that we get it. Like that last game wasn't the true RTS maybe you wanted. So we're going to we're going to give you the the 40K RTS that, that you deserve. And it ends up being this. It ends up sort of making that sort, sort of same nostalgic pitch that you see with uh, Modern Warfare Remastered, right? It, it's yeah. like, remember how much fun we used to have? We can go back to that. <laughs> that, that makes me think a lot of the, I mean... It hasn't come out yet, but Doom, right? The new oh, Doom that's yeah. coming out. The trailers for that, they don't have too much of a sense of seriousness, seriousness to it, excuse me. But it does feel like a title that's about like, oh, do you remember like, I mean, and it's that case of there was something that came before that wasn't as good, which was Doom 3, which mm. was sort of off and wasn't quite in that fast paced category of Doom 1 or Doom 2. And now they sort of want to take the new doom and say okay no this is i mean it's just modern enough for people who want to get into it but no it's okay it's still like the old doom it's going to be everything that you like and i don't know it like it, there are a lot of promises that tend to be made all of these implicit promises to return to a sort of past that with games especially probably doesn't exist in the first place <laughs> yeah. there's a lot of these times where we say like oh i loved that game and then you go back and play it and sometimes it's just not as good and uh, maybe not having that big more aspect of it is what you need i think doom is a perfect example of that right because like the new doom at least the the trailers i've seen are also trying to sell the idea of we're going back to the bloody demonic just like chainsawing <laughs> people apart uh <laughs> doom that you remember and love from when you were a kid Except the problem is you literally can't go back to that because the aesthetic quality of that and its meaning as a as something that will happen in a game has completely changed because of technology. 
Like in Doom 1, you ran at something and you hit it with a chainsaw and red pixels kind of sprayed out off, <laughs> coming out of the sprite, right? Like that, like it was nothing. It was, it felt gory and it felt meaty, but it didn't, you know, it was, it was, it was cartoonish. It was adorable, uh, <laughs> compared to what it looks like now where you've just got like, demons getting vivisected and like marines getting their like heads crushed and it's like yeah i guess this is sort of in keeping with the spirit of the original doom except now it's like actually borderline appalling yeah. uh in a, in a way that it wasn't before and it's this this it's it's this example of like doom is this is this game whose power comes from arriving at a certain place and time in gaming's history and you you can't recreate that you you can't there there is nothing to go back to because the the game needed that context it existed in a very specific space too for for example like doom was shareware right yeah. and that gives it a certain edge to it that doesn't exist when doom becomes a triple a entity that's being sort of shoved off you there was something kind of secretive about doom it was yeah. oh i have this and i'm going to pass it on to you it was even that way with Ca uh you know castle wolfenstein but with this now it's this sort of i mean the more you progress along that line of trying to one-up yourselves the more you need that budget the more you need that reliance on producers and that sort of brings it at least for doom and certain other titles away from exactly the past and exactly the type of experience and emotional feelings that people want yeah and so much of doom also the appeal for me anyway of the older game even kind of going back i played a game that was very much a doom-esque game with the same graphics called zibulba uh <laughs> a year ago or two years ago or something like that and and i think i brought it up on idle thumbs at the time too but it was really fun and awesome because the physics were completely ridiculous in the way that physics were in those games you know a fireball would come at you at a speed that you could actually dodge. And that was such a huge part of the rhythm of that game. There's almost like a rhythm of playing those games that was so much more fun and satisfying to me than playing a sort of a modern shooter that is not not realistic in any way, but, you know, the way sort of a, a fireball or whatever would <laughs> would actually sort of fly at you at a realistic speed. It was more fun for me to, like, dodge these sort of soft, you know, dodgeball skulls and, and flames and that sort of stuff, too, that... I don't know. That's such a huge part of it for me, that that sort of motion and movement and that feeling of it. So, yeah, uh, I, I agree. <laughs> so something I wanted to ask, ask you about, does that make it harder to create a franchise that is totally consistent or or self-aware at all, right? Because, like, there's, there's two things. I'm, I'm actually thinking of Naughty Dog with this, right? Like, mm. sometimes I ask myself, like, how would you go about making a Last of Us 2? Like, I'm sure there will be one at some point, but that was such a subdued game, right? Yeah. That, like, The Last of Us but more so seems kind of weird and crazy. <laughs> Laster uh, and, of us. Yeah. Right. And even, even if you're saying, well, now it's going, now it's going to focus on, uh, on Ellie as opposed to Joel, like, okay. But you know, you, you still got, you, you still got the fact that like the last of us was, was really telling this one specific story about this relation between these two characters. It's, it's hard to iterate on that. Right. Yeah. Uh, but I'm also like looking at that in the context of Uncharted 4, which I'm really hoping is, is sort of from what they seem to be marketing is this idea that like Nathan Drake is a guy who goes back to the well too often. Mm -hmm. That, you know, if you, if you look at the arc of that series, 
it's it's kind of Nathan Drake, like people slowly like falling away from from Drake, right? Like in in the third game, uh, people are actively calling out the fact that like you know his quests seem more than a little unhinged, and they're going to get his friends killed. And he doesn't seem to care, uh, and I kind of like this notion uh, that you know you can you can have this this franchise that is really bombastic, is really action-packed, but at the heart of it, there's this at least, you know, measure of self-awareness that's like, you know, a character who would do this, what does it say, what does it say about a person who keeps dragging his friends back into this? Like, what, what are the, what are they actually about? That intrigues me, but I'm also not sure you can really pull it off when you're still making the same game four times in a row. Yeah, Naughty Dog is so known as sort of like, we make games for grown-ups. You know, that's kind of their their shtick at this point. We make cinematic, very pretty games for grown-ups who are grown and have grown feelings. Uh, so yeah, it almost feels a little bit like, how yeah, how are you going to sort of have your cake and eat it too with this, with this specific series? And, you know, I'll be honest, I've never really gotten that into the Uncharted games. Uh, the only thing that really kind of keeps me interested in them is the fact that Claudia Black is in them, and I will watch her brush mm-hmm. her teeth. You know, that's, uh, <laughs> like, I'd be fine Creepy. with that. Yeah, I know. Oh. That's actually a terrible thing to say. But you know what I mean. It's, it's, it's one of those, I don't know, and, and God, it's, it's so difficult. It's so, so difficult because, of course, games are built around, you know, supposedly games are built around gameplay and franchises are built around recognizable characters and features that sort of have to go back to the well, at least in, in some capacity, unless you do something like a, you know, uh, the Twilight Zone approach of games, you know, sort of doing like a completely different kind of series that, you know, there's a narrative thread or there's something that kind of keeps them together. I think, you know, a series that did this somewhat well, I suppose, was Mass Effect, um, you know, that, that kind of it kept the hype going. And, you know, three was certainly a lesser game than than two, but at least it kind of it felt recognizable in all the right ways as it sort of upped the ante and up the stakes and so on and so forth. But yeah, I don't know if that was entirely successful either. So it's hard to tell what the plans are with that franchise in particular yeah. too, because Andromeda seems to be something where it wants to be in a like centralized location and more focused on smaller groups of people and not sort of intergalactic, but I'm sure at the same time they're going to try and find ways to make sure that their multiplayer is even bigger than what they tried to do in <laughs> Mass Effect 3, yeah. which was, yeah, great, Mass Effect 3, you have multiplayer. Well, why do I have this again? Oh, it's so that I can pay for your weird microtransaction yeah. stuff. See, I am, I'm so glad to hear you say that because I've had so many people like, Tell me straight up, they love they love that ma- that multiplayer. I liked like, the I just multiplayer. Don't understand yeah, you. no, I I liked it. it. I liked the actual gameplay of it. I did not like the way it integrated with the rest of the game. I thought that was poorly. It, I, I think they did it poorly. I, I I thought it would have been a cool thing that you could just sort of experiment with if you felt like it. I, uh, I sort was, of felt yeah. like it was just such a. It was such a not expert third person shooter that <laughs> I, I was like, man. I think if I wanted to do this, I think I might choose Play literally gears? any other game yeah. <laughs> uh, that, that is sort of like all about this as opposed to this like odd role-playing shooter hybrid. But you got to do it with Geth and whatever else. I've forgotten the, the names of the actual races that you're fighting and people that yeah. you're fighting. But yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm such a Mass Effect nerd that that was part of the appeal for me that I was like, oh yeah, cool. I'm going to fight these Geth and, you know, these weird uh, sort of undead monsters that are clearly from, uh, you know, 
Why am I not thinking of the name? I'm, I'm telling you guys that I'm this giant Mass Effect nerd and I can't think the of the name of it. Yes, yes, yes. The sort of like Reaper class of enemies. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> I, th- I think the, the, the Mass Effect is a really good example, right? Of like how the need to one-up yourself basically like consumes the entire series, right? Like the first game, you don't know what it's building towards. Uh, so it turns out it, it's sort of a scene, a scene setting game, uh, where you're just sort of trying to prove that humanity belongs, you know, it deserves its seat at the galactic table, as it were. And then the second game is kind of a series of TV shows about these specific characters. And then you go off and deal with the overarching threat. And then the third game is totally consumed by this by this the 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 the, the giant threat the the galaxy yeah. ending threat and all the marketing is around like it's time for the titanic battle the the big clash this entire game is going to be driven by the thing that chances are you were at least emotionally invested in yeah and there's going to be no escaping it this time and that's kind of how it felt when i was playing mass effect 3 i was like okay yep gonna go do this other quest in the context of this reaper bs all right <laughs> <laughs> like I, that's, that's, that's how, that's, that's what, that's the way I sort of approach that. And I, I think the smarter direction for a game like that would have been to move maybe more in a's like DS nine type direction of mm. we're, we're making a game where you're going to have all these cool characters and have these weird space adventures. But I understand, you know, it's harder to market that than it is to show like worlds being exploded and eaten and like the Normandy flying through battlefields. I get it. Yeah. Se- sequel escalation tends to be, I think, tied to player centrism, the idea that players are the most important thing. So if you look at Mass Effect, that series is, I mean, when you start off, Shepard is basically nobody, just a soldier. Then they become a specter and they get to do all sorts of crazy stuff. But at the end of Mass Effect 3, it's like there's a story being told about the Shepard and there's almost like these religious overtones. The more that you build up in a franchise like that, the more that I think franchises are trying to make the player feel as if they have the greatest amount of agency in the world. And to do that, you want to give them ways to really enact and show that agency. So it's not just, oh, I'm helping somebody on the Citadel deal with this person who is paying, you know, trying to make them pay too much at a store. (laughs) It's, oh no, I have to go up and I have to save entire planets and species from being destroyed and consumed. You have to become God, basically. Yes. (laughs) The player is God. There is there is one series that I think actually does this incredibly well, and potentially because it's sort of a satir- uh, excuse me a satirical series, but I feel like the Saints Row games are the sort of one area where where ridiculous sequel escalation has worked in their favor. And I might be in the minority thinking that because I actually like four better than three, and a lot of people you know thought three was sort of the the pinnacle of that series. But what they did was they just sort of made these games bigger and bigger and more ridiculous. And the storylines, you know, you're in this gang and it's sort of like, you know, sort of gang warfare kind of stuff. And then in three, you're the ultimate gang and you have corporate sponsorship and all this other ridiculous stuff. And in four, it's sort of like the world of three, but in a matrix world. And now you have superpowers like it, it had to go to this like superpower space for it to even escalate any even more. And I loved that actually about the gameplay. It was like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm this super powered gang leader who also can just literally run up buildings and run around and fly and do everything imaginably, you know, imaginably possible in an open world kind of setting. I have no earthly idea 
how they're going to escalate from where they did. But so far, that sort of ridiculous piling up of things has has been kind of a good thing for that series. You're not even just a gang leader in that, too. By four, you're the president of America. Mm. You're the president right. of America. <laughs> Keith Keith David is your, literally just Keith David, the actor, is your vice president. Oh, that's um, right. It's really And you make that moral choice do. in that very beginning scene where it's like, do you want to end world hang- hunger or destroy cancer? Like, you, you, you press a button to do one or the other. It, it's like... You know, very, very on the nose, but kind of fun, uh, just absolute, like, video game-ass video game-ness that, that for whatever reason, just works perfectly for, for what they're trying to go for. <laughs> At least I think so. I know a lot of people have very mixed feelings about the Saints Row series, but I've always been, See, I've always I, been I a no fan. I have no mixed feelings because the only one I've played is, is three. Okay. And so yeah. I'm like, no, the, uh, what? No, that, that series, that, those games are perfect. Yeah, they're they're pretty fun. Don't, 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 don't you dare <laughs> criticize the wrestling sequence. That's right. I would never. I I love those games. I genuinely love those games. I even like the jankiness of of the second game. Like I I God, I really I'm like down. the second game a lot. <laughs> yeah. It's really messy and there's something really nice about games that are trying to be bigger but also not afraid to be messy and sort of make mistakes. Yeah. I mean we're I mean we're talking about escalation and but in Saints Row 2 that still is just as messy if not even more messy because they're trying to do more stuff than the original Saints Row which yes. was just sort of a really generic GTA clone. <laughs> Pretty much. But that sort of lack of and I hate this word but I'll say it polish kind of makes it really endearing and charming in ways that really highly polished affairs uh, i don't think are as charming necessarily yeah since we're talking about volition uh but before before we put this topic to bed i I think i should call out the fact that like volition's free space series did escalation brilliantly uh in that the first game is a very sort of bog standard uh like tie fighter x-wing type game uh, a little, you know, refined in some ways. It's sort of going to school on those games, and the missions are a little more well constructed. Uh, there's there's a little more of a narrative hook, uh, and there's some really impressive scale for that time uh, when it comes to the ships. the The second game is very much. It was very. I remember it was very much marketed as like we made the ships even bigger, <laughs> and it could have just been really dumb, right? It's like okay, we we improved the technology, uh, sort of powering this game, and so everything is is even bigger. But what's really clever in two is that it uses that escalation to, you know, kind of what you what you were talking about, Heather, in, in that. A lot of these games make you the most important thing in that universe, in that world. And with the added size in two, what Volition did was it actually made you feel less important. You felt like you were almost like a bystander to like these events. Like, yeah, you were, you were a combat pilot and like you sort of held the keys to the mission. Uh, but you couldn't. It was very hard for you to just like sort of change the course of a battle. A lot of this stuff, you were just sort of fighting to survive and achieve an objective in the middle of this really huge, complicated battle. And then it turns out that the entire plot of two is that that escalation is actually more than you thought. Like in two, you discover that your entire conception of what this conflict was or who your enemy was, um, the rules of this universe are completely wrong. And 
there's this great reveal in two where you go on this mission to destroy the enemy super ship and uh you do it you 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 fly, you fly around in this nebula and you just you destroy this uh this this giant ship and you're like great we killed the enemy flagship and then a new one warps in that's probably four times the size of the ship you just destroyed like it takes like <laughs> a couple minutes to yeah. fly along this thing's hull like you can't even in it, it's very clever they hide it in a nebula so you can never get a clear look at it all you get is like little images of like you're you, it's sort of the um you know the blind men groping the elephant type thing you have no <laughs> idea what you're dealing with all you can sense is its, is its vastness and that made for a really clever take on like you know a way to way to handle this escalation right like yeah it's more it's bigger it's 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 badder uh but here's the thing uh, it's actually sort of more than you can comprehend at first, and we're going to play with that. And that was really cool, but uh, it, it required downplaying the player rather than sort of building them up. I like that you brought up um, marketing just very briefly, the idea of, oh, this thing's bigger, let's talk about how big it is, because have either of you seen the user, I think it was a Reddit user, I don't even know who it was, who took the Infinite Warfare presser and got yes. rid of all of the adjectives. <laughs> yes, this is on Rock, Paper, Shotgun. <laughs> right? It's fantastic. So it's like that whole thing was like, the game has even faster loading times <laughs> and the soldiers will do grand things. But like the press, if you get rid of it, is just like the campaign from Combat to Fighters occurs as an experience with loading times <laughs> and delivers franchise moments that fans love. It's <sighs> phenomenal. And I recommend that anybody listening seek it out just to see the difference that the whole hype cycle can play into the idea of escalation in sequels as well. The way we talk about sequels, the way we talk about games affects the way that games are made. Yes, it does. And that's, yeah, that's such an important point. I, I always kind of wonder if we lived in a bizarro universe where games were not sort of a commercial product, if we lived in like this perfect universe where like, you know, anybody could just kind of make anything and they didn't have to sort of, you know, depend uh, on that for feeding their families. Like, what are the things that we would see? What are the, <laughs> you know, what kinds of things would come out of that? That's, I guess that's a topic for another day, certainly. Uh, but yeah, it, the hype cycle is, is such a huge part of why things are the way they are in this industry. Which I, I think, I, and I love that point because I think it does, it's easy to sort of mock and dismiss a lot of coverage of, game news because so much of it is sort of rewriting press releases and, and sort of getting caught up in the hype. But here's where I, where I, where I will defend those practices to some extent. Like if you sort of critically look at how marketing works, um, I think that's exactly right. Like this actually drives games. Like the, yeah. the, like when, when these promises that they're making aren't coming out of the ether, they're not meaningless. It's, it's like a political campaign to an extent, right? Like the, these are signals about what they're trying to sell you on, what they're, what they're intending to do with this work. And that also it, it goes both ways, right? It's not just them trying to sell you on something, but they also create what they think they can sell. Mm -hmm. And, I, I think, you know, like looking at how games are marketed is maybe a little more important, uh, to discussing them critically than, than is maybe the case with, with other media because there's such a tight connection between what gets made and what's marketable. Yeah. It's, it's such a completely commercial, uh, medium. Whereas, you know, you can at least kind of find some super underground stuff. Obviously, you know, there are the sort of itchios, uh, which are, 
starting to happen, basically. But yeah, I think your point is is very well taken, Rob. And actually, we, believe it or not, have an email uh, that does speak to at least a little bit of these ideas. So let's go right into our mailbag, right into our weekend correspondence after a word from our sponsors. I'll do it twice just in case we don't do ads. So that's a really, really great point. And actually, we have an email that speaks a little bit to that. So let's go right into our mailbag. So our first letter comes from William Wickland. And they say, hey, Weekenders, longtime listener and a first time writer here, having finally overcome my anxiety after dreaming that I wrote a super dorky mail after the first episode. It was weird. Oh, that's, I <laughs> uh, love them. I know. Isn't that great? Okay. Anyway, listening to your latest podcast, The Dark Souls of dot dot dot, hearing you talk about capitalism being a problem sent my anarcho syndicalist lefty heart a beaten heavily and made me want to talk to you about something I've been thinking about a lot before communal game dev hackerspaces. I know there are a lot of spaces where creative people can get together and produce stuff they're interested in uh, pretty much anywhere, be it shared workshops or art studios, but spaces dedicated to game slash software development or spaces where it's encouraged seem to be somewhat more rare, unsurprisingly. I've been thinking about started, uh, trying to start one up here, and I feel like it'd be easier in a country like Sweden, where we have stuff like the Workers' Educational Association, uh, who are willing to support educational and creative efforts undertaken by groups of people, especially younger folks. Uh, but that money, that money would still, it wouldn't help cover stuff like hardware costs and licenses, even if stuff like Maya or 3DS Max can be switched out for something free like Blender 3D. How do you think the game dev world might be affected if we were to intentionally attempt to grow a culture where pretty much anyone who's interested could go to a communal space and join a game dev project? Might this be how the world finally starts seeing proportional representation of people who aren't white men in games? Could some of the bigger industry players be convinced to support community-driven game development on a larger scale? Love to hear your thoughts on this. Uh, super queer greetings from northern Sweden, William Wickland. Wow, that that dovetailed perfectly into the sort of the end of our discussion there uh, from sort of how giant commercial games work and how uh, marketing-driven they are. I don't know if we can truly hope for large corporations to fund things like these because it's not necessarily in their interest to do so. But, you know, the the eternal optimist in me says that things like Blender and things like Unity being free and, and now Unreal Engine having sort of free licenses and things like Itch.io are a wonderful breeding ground for at least some of this and sort of the free resources that you can find. You can basically teach yourself how to use Unity, how to code in C Sharp, how to use Unity, how to use Blender, and you can make a game for free. Now, that is obviously, um, you know, that comes with the the sort of barrier to entry that you do need a computer and you do need, um, you know, internet access and a, a couple of things. Basically, there, there's no zero barrier to entry way of doing this. But it, at the very least, there are now tools and resources. Um, and I, God, I really would love to see that happen more. I would love to see people come together and do things like that. And I think you're right, uh, William, that, you know, a place like Sweden might be... <laughs> frankly, a, a better place for that sort of thing, just because there are things like social safety nets in, in mm-hmm. a place like that, where we just, mm-hmm. we don't have any of that shit in America. Like, you know, it's, <laughs> you, need, you, you, need to, computer, you need to eat. You don't have the time. Exactly. To, no, to exactly. actually invest in learning this craft because yeah. the amount of free time a, you're allowed yeah. is, is really limited. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true and very depressing. And, you know, we can, we can make all the Bernie jokes we want, but (laughs) I I definitely see something like this happening in a place that does sort of provide those, those, um, 
you know, those resources for its citizens. So what do you, what do you folks think about this? To a certain extent, I think you can foster and build an independent community simply through something like the internet. Not that I think the internet internet is a great place. The internet is hor <laughs> the internet is horrible. The internet yeah. is ridiculous. But because you're able to disseminate information so easily, and you're able to, like you said, give people resources for the education you need. Like you know, Code Academy is a thing that yeah. you can do. You can you can learn. If I really need to know how to do C sharp, or if I want to learn something else, the resources are there. And not all of those resources are tied to capital, right? right. You don't have because that sort of push and pull doesn't exist in the in the case of I am providing you a service, therefore you must pay me back capital the internet at the very least has potential to foster the sort of labor relationships that we would like, or at least bring together people with like-minded philosophies regarding labor. Um, I think maybe you would be able to be doing this a little bit better in countries that don't have such solid capitalist structures. But the truth of the matter is I don't think we're going to be able to transform anything anytime soon. Things are really rooted in place. So the best option is just to carve out whatever little space you can and just hang on for dear life. <laughs> and that sounds really sad, but I think it, I think it really is. If, if you are tenacious, you will at least get to the point where maybe you can produce something and then you can deal with the problem of capital once you're in that production point. Cool. Uh, our next email comes from Paul from Oslo. Hi, Robin, Danielle. I have some comments on the discussion about game length and content padding. Full disclosure before I start. I like the parts of open world games that seem that most seem to regard as padding. And I've played games for many hours that I would describe as only padding. <laughs> uh, for example, the Football Manager series. I get that you as games journalists get frustrated with long games. Obviously, you have to play uh, even if you don't enjoy the experience. But I think there are types of experiences that really need long, low-intensity periods to work. The reason I like open world games is that they give me the feeling of moving to or going on a holiday to a place that I've never been to. I start being lost in an interesting place, roam around, get to know the area, and in the end, I know the world like my backyard. The explore and get to know the area effect is the main driving force to continue for me, and at least in Formula Ubisoft games, the collectibles <laughs> and viewpoints basically give me a new place to focus on. If the story feels bad and boring, I will not finish it. If it feels good, I might. But the exploration part is really the point for me. In addition, I like 3D platforming, and Ubisoft usually hides the hard platforming for the collectibles, so people don't get too frustrated, I guess. I think this feeling is very difficult to reproduce in a three to five hour game because getting to know the area takes time. The other problem is that I'm currently a stay at home dad, paid paternity leave for seven months, go Norway. Oh, nice. And oh, wow. I need to be able to pause at an instant, baby awake and come back <laughs> six hours later, baby asleep without that diminishing the experience too much. For me, it is not about games being long for the sake of being long. I just tend to enjoy the so-called padding more in these kinds of games. If that means I play fewer of them, no problem for me. If it means I don't finish them, fine as well. And if I'm hungry after something with a better story, I sit down and play Firewatch. Oh, that's that's sweet pandering. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. Uh, so one, I don't think I would describe Football Manager as remotely that's uh, as purely padding. That that's only padding. I think after you've been down the Football Manager rabbit hole for a while, right? Like because the the point of entry to that is all right. 
how do you feel about stats-driven analysis <laughs> of your favorite sport? Yeah. Like, so I'm not sure I qualify anything that happens after that as as padding. But but I totally get the the, the critique, right? That you know, in much the same way we talked about, like Dark Souls has to be just kind of vicious in some ways or like Sims have to be really unforgiving to create the, the rewarding feelings that sort of make it worth it. Uh, I, I totally understand that there are certain vibes, there's certain goals that probably are only achievable. If you sort of create this, uh, laid back, uh, take it at your own pace, uh, theme park that you find in a lot of open world games. So, so I get it. Um, I, I just feel like a lot of that, for me, like a lot of the stuff in the in the Ubisoft games, I guess, is just not that interesting. Mm. Like the like those 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 little like sort of throwaway quests, a lot of them feel completely interchangeable. And so for for me, a lot of the experience starts to feel like uh, like an ellipse or like a a a, a really long desert. Uh, so that's that's kind of why that kind of padding ends up chasing me away. Yeah, I think a lot of this for me, I, you know, I'm reading this letter. I was thinking like, yeah, exploration is kind of my favorite part of most games as well. I like being in a world. I like exploring. That's really fun for me. Where it becomes annoying for me is when I, I have to do the mandatory boring thing. Like that's, you know, oh, you must do this as opposed to here's a meandering quest that you can take 12 hours to do. Or, you know, you can kind of do these things out in the world. And of course, Take a drink. Witcher 3, I think, really does this so well. Like, you could just sort of mainline the quest and get through that game really quickly. But there's such richness in the world that I had a wonderful time going to every single island in Skellige and just seeing what was there. You know, I feel like that was completely my choice and and my ability to kind of go off the beaten path and do those things as opposed to like, well, you can't beat the game if you don't get 12... I don't know, whatever collectible or, or, you know, that kind of thing. Like there's a way to design for both of these kinds of experiences. And that's, you know, kind of uh, what I would rather see in, in open world games personally. Awesome. So our next letter comes from Dan. Great name, Dan. That's me saying it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Hello, Danielle and Rob. I'm going to admit that your conversation about dark souls this week kind of bummed me out. Here we go. Yep. Okay. Here we go. Uh, rolling up the sleeves for this one. We got a, we got a cool. few of these. Uh, yeah. yeah. Quite a few. I would argue that the rewards of Dark Souls are largely much more about personal accomplishment, something you guys hit on, but I'd like to elaborate on more particularly. Early in the conversation, Danielle discussed gaining something real from the challenges at the gym, but I think you also gained from the intellectual challenges a game like Dark Souls puts in front of you. You learn to have higher thresholds when it comes to things like patience, concentration, and mental acuity. Sure, there are other ways to improve in these areas, just like there are other types of exercise you could do besides boxing, but that's besides the point. Games like Dark Souls are essentially intellectually demanding in the same way that other activities are physically demanding, and I personally value intellectual fitness as much as I do physical fitness. Moreover, I think a lot of modern game design tends to encourage intellectual passivity to a depressing degree. I would also argue that the challenge in these games makes uh, uh, makes all the game systems themselves a lot more meaningful. Most games have loot, level-up systems, and items that are all but window dressing, completely unnecessary for progress in the game. But in Dark Souls, every advantage you can get is important. I comb through all my items. I anticipate level-ups and sweat over what stats to upgrade. Finally, I'd also point out that the challenge in the Souls games is also largely what fosters a sense of community and and camaraderie. Offering other players tips is even built into the game world. 
And anyone that has ever talked with someone else who has played a Souls game will notice that one person can mention a particular enemy in a specific location. Almost without fail, the other person will remember that exact enemy. I think there's a deeper conversation to be had about the nuanced relationship between game difficulty and interactivity for certain types of games, but I've probably over overstayed my welcome, so I'll just show myself the nearest drawbridge with a dragon. All the best, Dan. Okay. Wow. Uh, yeah. Okay, I will say this. Uh, recently, I spent 14 hours on one boss in Dark Souls. Like, 14 in-game hours. This was not, like, 14 hours sitting there, but, like, this was 14 hours of the game. I'm so uh, glad we're going to have this conversation. Because oh, I, I remember I remember when that oh, happened, and I'm yeah. going to tell you what I did in those 14 hours. I, I want to hear about it. Yeah, it, it was very, like, I went to every other area of the game. I did every imaginable thing that I could do, and I leaned on advice from other people. And finally, at 3.30 in the morning... I went in and I fought this boss. This is the Abyss Watchers, if you're interested. And I fought the boss and I had it down to its last hit point. The, it, there wasn't even like a, a slither of a sliver rather of, of red in its sort of health bar. And I died when it was on that, the very last sliver. And I was like, I, I hate my life. I hate everything. I can't deal yep. with this 14 hours of my life. I could have been doing something useful. And then I went right back in and I creamed the boss like i had i was doing fine i did great i don't i think i got hit once or twice and just wiped the floor with it and then subsequently the next day i went through the next four areas of the game i I basically went through the entire next quarter of the game no problem just sailed through i beat the next boss on the second try i just was like yeah i'm i'm getting better i'm i'm improving so i had just the lowest low and then the highest high and you know, I'm like 45 hours into the game at this point. I'm I'm pretty far into the game at this point, and I I I think I'm starting to get what Dan is talking about. I think I am starting to get, uh, you know, at least somewhat uh, the, the feeling of accomplishment, the feeling of actually growing and getting better at something. It's not nearly as intense as it is. Like if I have a good day boxing, I I am high for two days. I am just like, yeah, I'm getting better. I'm getting good. Things are going to be great. It's it's a shadow <laughs> of that feeling, certainly, but but it is still that flavor of feeling, and that is really cool. And it's it's pretty intense, even even though it's kind of less intense than the sort of physical uh, version of that feeling. And what Dan is talking about in terms of camaraderie, I am really starting to get that because uh, the only way I beat that boss was really, really sort of seeking the advice of other people and sort of saying like, hey, what's going to work for me? A lot of people had advice that was useless <laughs> for me, frankly, but Laura Miche, who I'm doing sort of my let's play with at Zam, kind of gave me the best advice, which was, okay, this is your play style. Here's how you beat him with your play style. And actually sort of gave me genuinely good oh, advice. Oh, totally boxing coached, yeah. Y- yeah, absolutely. It was, like it was not like... you're back in the corner, just like leaning against the, <laughs> leaning against the, the turnbuckle. That's so how it was, because everybody else was like, no, you need to change your play style. You need to do shields. You need to do X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, I'm not comfortable with that stuff, coach. It's like if somebody told me, oh, you got to fight Southpaw. And I'm just like, that sucks. My th- my right hand is not for jabbing. That's not how this works. You know, it was one of those. And then, and then she just comes up with her little, you know, like she has the little robe or something and is just like, hey... How about you upgrade your pyromancies? And then you do that. And and it worked. And here I am, friends. I live to tell the tale and I'm still playing the game. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, sorry. Really long-winded answer. But um, I'm beginning to appreciate a lot of things about this game. I still, however, do stand by my sort of um, reservations about just how high the price is to get to this point. Like, I don't know... 
that I would have spent 45 hours in this if I did not have to kind of do this for work because we're doing a Let's Play. I don't know that I would have not kind of moved on to the next thing if there wasn't something really kind of keeping me in it. And also that I'm, you know, a pretty stubborn person. Uh, <laughs> that helps. So it's, it's, it's still a little hard to recommend, honestly, uh, for, for sort of everybody because of that. Because a lot of people just do not have that time and that space in their life. And that's, that's a hard sell. Honestly, it, it really is for a lot of folks. So yeah, I'm, I'm starting to get it, but I am, I, I stay firm on my feeling of like, yeah, that's, it's, it's a lot. It takes a lot. Well, I think the question is also to like, okay, it's fine that the game is teaching me, but what kind of teacher am I dealing with here? A really There's mean a, one. Yeah. I was going to say, it's like some <laughs> weird, crazy Shaolin master who like, like lets you starve for days it's and then the dude you up when you're too. starving. Yes, right? it is. I think somebody actually made that point, uh, the question of Dark Souls and difficulty and easy modes, and that has been all around lately. And honestly, the answer is, I think that it's great that Dark Souls pushes players to come together as a community, but I think it's bad that the way that Dark Souls encourages people to come together as a community is because Dark Souls itself doesn't particularly yes. care for you enough as a player to give you the information that you need. Yeah. That game is very obfuscated. That game is very mean. Yes. There's been a lot of mean games this year. Another one that I know you had a great time with, Danielle, <laughs> and I had a great time reviewing it, was The Witness. Oh, yeah. The Witness is an incredibly mean game, yes. right? And so is Dark Souls. And sure, you're learning and you're sort of going from each challenge and figuring out how the game works and what are the rules and sort of what is the logic by which this realm is sort of ordained. Just how how does it run? Yeah, yeah. But Dark Souls, the reason you had to turn to other people is because Dark Souls, when you turned to Dark Souls and said, hey, Dark Souls, can you help me out? Dark Souls said... Sorry, nope. And then, like, <laughs> took a cigarette and, like, p put it out in your eye Basically, at the same time. yes. <laughs> uh, I think that neatly dovetails with the uh, next email, we email we've got from Quentin. Nice. Hey, Danielle and Rob. You guys also dedicated a fair amount of time last week discussing Dark Souls 3. I am currently in the very early stages of my Bloodborne hazing ritual, <laughs> and I found myself nodding my head vigorously in agreement to everything that was said. Rob talked about the, the Souls games setting you up for failure. I couldn't agree more. A common refrain I've heard in defense of these brutally difficult games is that they're tough but fair, with always a great amount of emphasis on fair. I don't know about that. Drawing from my limited experience of Bloodborne and Dark Souls, I'd say the game's designers are very fond of ambushes and frustratingly long stretches of play before you get a sniff of the next lantern save point. On the one hand, each death is informing me as a player on what to do next, and with each attempt, my finesse with the combat mechanics improves that much more. But then we have the game's insistence on surprise attacks, new enemies that will gleefully introduce themselves with an attack string that puts you in a fatal stun lock, and for God's sake, such large spacing between checkpoints that you could easily play 45 minutes to an hour only to meet an untimely death and have to do it all over again. Wiser I have become, but I don't forgive the game for being so cavalier with my precious gaming time. You die and you learn. But you only learn by dying. And to me, that is a massive design crutch. And the death march between checkpoints would be a valid criticism leveled at many other games as a pacing and difficulty curve issue. Yet for some reason, these Souls-style games get a pass. And I'm with you on the sentiment that these games are still a lot of fun. The world building is great. The combat mechanics are superb. 
how is it then that they're so <laughs> so willing to waste my time? See, I finally snuck in a question after all that complaining. <laughs> I am so there with you, Clinton. So, so there with you. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I get incredibly frustrated and all the fan, you know, the, the souls born elite, they tell you like, you just, it'll just teach you. It'll just change your brain so that you become more patient. It just requires patience. It'll just be one of those things. And so much of this, God, I forget the concept in psychology, but, but, you know, the sort of, you're in the club because you've done a hard thing, so you yes. can't not be in the club. I, I'm I'm failing to actually sort of uh, find the proper actual social uh, social psychology term for this, but there's this is an actual phenomenon in psychology that like you do a difficult thing and then you will never look down on that thing because it was like an accomplishment and you are now sort of part of this elite. That's part of it. Like there's a cult like aspect uh, to to sort of getting really really great at these games and really loving them. Um, and you're absolutely right about ambushes and total bullshit. I, I swear to God, everybody, every time I get annoyed and mad when I'm sort of streaming this game, and I'm like, really, really, people are like, well, you should have looked before you did the thing. And I'm just like, dude, come on. Like, like this game is reveling in its, in its meanness to me. And there are literally times where I'll be like, hey, I'm getting better at this. I feel good about this. You know, I'll dispatch a difficult enemy without taking a hit. And then I will say it out loud. I'll be like, all right, I'm starting to feel a little better. And it's as if the game heard me and then just comes out and like a random scrub enemy will kill me or I'll fall off a ledge or, you know, whatever will happen and I'll die. And I'm just like, ah, yeah, okay. Um, The whole Shaolin Master thing, uh, the whole, you know, uh, what Heather just said about, you know, the game's coaching style is to put a cigarette out in your eye is completely valid. And I really do wish... Uh, that, that things were made a little bit more fair and a little bit more accessible. And they don't need to tune down the difficulty. They don't need to make the combat any less brutal and efficient and, and incredibly deliberate because this is a very, very deliberate game. That's the way it plays. They could just make a few little nuanced, you know, design decisions towards just kind of eliminating the complete bullshit deaths. And I would be a hundred times happier with this series. <laughs> I do kind of wonder though if that gets them anywhere. Going back to the marketing discussion, right? Yeah, like yeah. their audience now, they've cultivated it. Like they've set expectations and now mm-hmm. there's sort of a a virtuous cycle, right? Like the new then here comes the new Souls game. Get ready to just get pounded audience. <laughs> and the audience is like, Yeah, give it to me. Yeah. What's well, that motto? Prepare to die. Yeah. Yep. Um, so I'm not sure, like, you know, I, I think making it more accessible in some ways might sort of offend the sensibilities that they've, they've sort of created with their own audience. It's, it's again, again, to take the political metaphor, right? Like, you know, if you move, if, if you shift your pitch in one direction, you start losing people from one of the, one of the extremes of your support, right? So it's, 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 you want to land at the median and the median for Dark Souls is, I think, pretty close to, to where they've ended up. And they're okay locking people like me and locking people like, uh, Clinton sort of on the outside. Cause it's like, no, this is, y- yeah, your precious gaming time. Uh, this is for people whose precious gaming time is to be invested in something that requires massive investment. Yeah. Uh, but the payoff will be this, this very, the, this very unique sort of, uh, reward. Um, so I mean, I, I, I sort of, I'm not sure I, I I'm not sure I, I can criticize the thinking behind, 
the way the Souls games work, I can just say from my position, like, I ended up in, in much the same place as Clinton, where it's like, uh, A, I can't this the way this game is teaching me is just consuming vast amounts of time and my career i can pretty i can pretty much write down on a piece of paper at any given time <laughs> what what an hour or two of, of that time is worth yes uh and i constantly need to find ways to 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 get something out of it uh and i think a lot of people are, are in a similar boat where you just don't have you know you, you you've got a very limited amount of time to 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 sort of uh pursue leisure activities this is for people who will find this type of uh, game rewarding. I, I, I will say though, uh, like I, I chose Dan's email uh, because it was I thought it was a very good description of of what makes those games great, and also I think the the emphasis on community is interesting because I feel like to an extent the community that's formed around this game has helped excuse many of its flaws, right? Like that community yeah. exists because Souls is a shitty teacher. Yes. And yes. it's yeah. become a selling point. Well, now you get to be one of us. Now, <laughs> now after Sensei mm -hmm. has broken all your fingers, <laughs> you can come to our wiki and learn what build you should have used. You can learn how you <laughs> needed to how you needed to deal with that enemy as opposed to what you were trying. Uh so it's I, I find that an interesting uh shift. Yeah. I agree. The big way that this changes, honestly, is just, I mean, we were talking about how a thing teaches, and the big question now is, what does a game want to teach? And most games just want to teach you how to play the game better so the experience can propagate itself and can last longer. But sooner, when games start to try teaching us things other than just technical mastery and how to play the thing better, I think the attitudes around games, I think the community surrounding games, I think the design principles surrounding games will fundamentally change in some pretty radical ways. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Well, that about wraps up our, our mailbag. So we are going to go right into our weekend projects after a word from our sponsors. And I'll do it again. <clears throat> And that about wraps up our mailbag for this week. So let's go right into weekend projects. So Heather, I'm going to ask you to go first. What is something you've been reading or watching or playing that you would love to recommend and tell us a little bit about? So this is pretty obvious because uh, I think a lot of people are playing it right now. And it's, over oh, it's Overwatch. Yes, yes, yes. Overwatch is really, really fun. And it's sort of something I didn't really expect to grab me and draw me in as much as it did. And now, I mean, right now it's closed beta, but it's going to be open beta within the next couple of days or something. Yeah. And I mean, I, I really want to see that game take off. And I think it will. I mean, it's a Blizzard game. People just sort of jump into what Blizzard does considerably uh, with a lot of fervor because they do it very well, but it's, it's fun. I don't care if I'm winning or losing, which is amazing because if I'm playing other games, I'm so obsessed with like stats. I want to know what, like, like what my kill to death ratio is with this. I just, the characters are fun. Everything 
sort of clicks. It It's really, really been something I, I'm loving. So this was actually my pick this week as well. So, yep. I, so I'm going to keep talking <laughs> to you about it a little tiny bit. Uh, so that oh, it counts as sort of as both of our, uh, <laughs> as both of our picks. I didn't expect to like this at all. I suck so bad at uh, sort of at shooters. And I haven't spent that much time with my hands actually on the game. It's more that I've been sort of streaming it with my girlfriend and uh, with my friend who's here uh, sort of visiting with us who are much better at online shooters but i'm having so much fun sort of like enjoying this world that it sort of takes place in and all these like you said all these characters i'll tell you heather this is actually funny i was watching your stream uh yesterday and i actually sort of figured oh my god what a perfect opportunity and i actually sort of showed some of my students a little bit of your gameplay just because we're uh we're talking about game feel in the course that i'm teaching right now and i was like oh game feel no this is a perfect you know example of sort of showing this off in in a really sort of concrete way like all these different characters play really differently so this is a really great way of sort of showing off the you know the concept of game feel but the game feels great i know that sounds like the, the most reductive thing but i know it it's, does. it's such a weird thing to talk about but <laughs> it, it does and each character does have a very distinct feeling and i think this game owes a lot to um just everything that's sort of come before it in terms of like this game is like and it's happening with a lot more games but it's like Let's count the ways that this thing has been influenced by MOBAs, and this game is clearly influenced by MOBAs. There are heroes with distinct, you know, play styles and accessibility levels, and I think Blizzard really does that well. Yeah. I mean, they do it well in all their games. Diablo, you could pick your different classes, and that makes sense. Hearthstone, it's all there in Heroes of the Storm. Everything sort of falls into place. Nothing feels completely... um overtuned or undertuned this game feels um very well situated in terms of it knowing exactly the experience it wants to deliver yeah yeah i I would totally agree with that i also like there are a whole bunch of things that i'm sort of noticing as i'm you know primarily watching people play it but spending a lot of time sort of watching and my god i love the animation in this game so so much it is it is such a perfect example of like just economical animation like you know you are this player character and you know there are tiny little things like i think it's diva it's the the character who's in this sort of little yeah. in the giant tank. mech so you know when she's being shot at with with bullets there's sort of her shield ability she's actually if you notice her her thumbs actually move on on her own little joysticks and like that's what's shooting the the bullets away like tiny little amazing little uh Features like that show you so much about these characters and also about this world. And also, of course, you know, the overriding uh, goal being, you know, give the player so much information and feedback in such a clear and concise way. And I'm so impressed uh, by that in this game. I also really love the way it looks. It is so colorful. It is so bright. It almost reminds me of Splatoon. It doesn't play anything like Splatoon, but it almost has that like anti-brown sort of feeling, if that makes sense. You know, the the sort of brown game, the brown shooter that everybody... I don't mean brown in terms of, you know, like the actual color but like the, the dreariness saturated military yeah. shooter where yes. it's like right. love band yes. of brothers here's a game that looks like that. exactly i watched black hawk down exactly yeah. it's like the complete opposite of that where everything's pink and purple and green and bright and and very pretty and and god it's it's so it's such a treat to look at as well as it, you know it's feel. very inviting yeah right it, it, it sort of wants to because it's about all of these heroes and sort of it has this sweeping sort of orchestral soundtrack that comes in when big moments happen and things like that it's it's sort of asking you to answer a 
a call of your own to sort of step up and, hey, do you want to be a hero? Do you want to join us? Well, jump into this really colorful world. Yeah. And it, it, I think it really, really is just like I was completely surprised. <laughs> I was sort of hesitant going into it. Um, just on the merits of its design, I, I play TF2. People are like, oh, this is sort of like TF2. And I was like, this seems a little bit too much like it. But no, not at, not <laughs> yeah, at all. Yeah. It plays completely differently. Everything feels incredibly unique and really just every, like, I played it for hours and hours yesterday and it felt brisk and I loved every second of so it. So did you just start playing it? I were you, picked were up. You in the, so, were you in the earlier beta or, or the one that just so, started? So I just did the one that started. Um, during the day, I work as a barista, and I'm near a game spot. So I just went down, and I was like, "Hey guys, beta codes!" <laughs> and so, nice. so I did that. Um, one of the perks of being able to give people iced teas every now and then is yeah. that they, you, I scratch your back, you scratch That's mine. That's awesome. And um, <laughs> I yeah, no, I've only been playing it for a day, and it's been. I mean, I've was thinking about it while I was at work today. I was thinking about it, knowing that this podcast was coming up soon, going, oh my gosh, I can't wait to talk to you guys about this game. Yeah. Uh, so I really like Overwatch. I have concerns about it as a teacher. Uh, uh, oh, sure. Because I think there's so, there's so much going on with the interactions of the characters. Like, TF2 is very easy to understand, right? This dude heals dudes. That dude is a big bag of hit points with a Gatling gun. Hmm, wonder if we can use these two things together. Uh, it's like, it, it's all very simple to see how the pieces fit together. And then the, the strategy of employing them is, is, is really deep and nuanced. Uh, and there's a lot of, like, different skills to pick up with each of these, each of these characters. But it's not that hard to, to see how the pieces fit together. Uh, I feel like Overwatch, and maybe this doesn't matter because the game's just so inviting and appealing that you just sort of keep playing it even if you don't know what you're doing. Uh, so maybe it's not that big an issue, but I definitely feel like I am really struggling at times to sort of see what the game is trying to tell me about mm -hmm. the interactions between these characters. It's got all these different like sorts of the, the, all these different classes for heroes, but then within those classes, the heroes do such different things that. It, it, it's kind of they're loosely sorted together, but come on, they're not they're not even like in the same in the same genus, right? That's <laughs> that is kind of how it ends up feeling. Um, so I, I guess like I I there's a lot I like about this game, but then I am constantly encountering situations where there's like a stalemate on a map, and I'm like I have no idea with this map layout and the characters currently on the field. I have no idea what yeah the you play don't know is. you don't know what the play is you yeah. don't know what the counter is yeah. And that that I go from like like enjoyment to futility really quickly in those mm. scenarios, and it happens more on some maps some maps than others. But it's it's a slight concern I have that there's there's a lot going on, and Overwatch is so busy being colorful and and having fun and offering all this variety that at no point does it stop and 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 say like, oh by the way, you probably want to try this in this situation. I think I think it's very obvious that the game does presume a certain amount of literacy from the player, mm. and that can be a really bad thing. Games in general are terrible about this. <laughs> I, I think, to a certain extent, because there is enough variety in terms of what character you can play, at the very least, if you can't figure out where all the interlocking parts and mechanics sort of uh, click and fit together, I think you can at least find something that you are comfortable with. Yeah. 
whether or not it's the optimal thing mm. or whether it's, you know, whether I'm playing this character and, you know, if I'm playing Reaver, is this, are they the hard counter to whoever, right? Like, I, I understand the concern you have absolutely because I think there's a certain elegance to a game like TF2 that is sort of so very basic in terms of like, what does this guy do? Well, he's the soldier. He has <laughs> yeah. a rocket launcher. Uh, Overwatch has a little bit more complexity to it, but I think that there are enough options that even if you can't fully comprehend the complexity of what is occurring, you can at least find something that doesn't completely frustrate you in terms of providing an experience that you can, maybe not for an extended period of time, but maybe just for a little sit down and play and just sort of enjoy yourself. Yeah. Or at least I hope that no, I mean, would be the that case. That happened for me. But unfortunately, my experience was playing Soldier 76 for like an hour. And I was like, <laughs> oh, the, oh, uh, man, the Call of Duty character. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, do you do you have a favorite character, Heather? Before we, uh, I'm I'm curious who you're. Oh my with gosh, the most. I love Tracer. Yeah, Tracer is so Me fun. Too. You get you get to dash around. Um, and I, I I I love the design. I love the character. Her voice is silly. It's not, it's a terrible British accent, yes. <laughs> but it's a character. She's just like, all right, love cavalry's here, <laughs> and it's so. But there's that play style of being able to dart about and especially because there are heavy characters in this game like big tanky characters mm. with shields you can sort of like dance around them right and that's really really fun i think there are characters that i play better as and whether that's because they are just inherently easier to sort of understand is up in the air but tracer is probably the one that i am having the most fun and just flat out enjoyment with oh, that makes sense i i feel i've been told i should cosplay is tracer next uh, oh, next time it. i have the chance to do that not that i'm like a cosplayer but that's people have said like oh that's you but with a british accent so <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty cool so rob uh what are you watching playing feeling really mm. into this weekend um so i am i've been playing an odd little game that's on early access Ooh. uh kim Kim. Kim. Which is based on Rudyard Kipling's novel, Kim. Oh, my God. And it is kind of a, um, I don't know if you're familiar with, like, Sunless Sea. Oh, yes. But it's it's kind of someone making a version of that, but it's about uh, being a lovable, smart street urchin in colonial India. Oh, that's cool. And... It's actually shockingly enjoyable. Uh, I, I've, I think there's parts of it that I'm not entirely sure work. Uh, there, there's moments where like you, you run into, it has, it has combat, right? Or it has, it, it has stealth, stealth modes. Uh, but that all feels a little bit intrusive and a little alien in the way the game is currently constructed. Uh, but the, the gist of it is if you're familiar with the, with the book, um, Kim is it is, still set in Tibet and everything? Yeah, on the oh, on the nice. India Tibet border. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Like it, it starts out like Kim is just this 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 kid who lives on the streets. He's he's kind of an orphan, but at the same time, like everyone loves him. Like he's just a really personable, uh, really personable kid. And he runs into this uh, Tibetan Tibetan Lama, who's who's coming down to explore India and and try to find enlightenment. And the the thing, the interesting thing about Kim is there's really no plot. 
Like there, you can say there's, there's things that happen and there are certain threads that run through it, but really it is just this kind of coming of age story, uh, as this kid grow, grows from being like a, a teenager to, to a young man and figuring out sort of his place in the world. Uh, and it's, it's really kind of just about like him running into people and, and talking to them and expanding his perspective on, on what the world is and how it works. Uh, learning how, you know, who the British really are, learning who, uh, you know, what, what, you know, sets like Muslims apart from, from Hindus apart from Buddhists. Uh, and somebody made a game about this and it, 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 it works. It feels, Thanks. it feels fun and personable and, and charming. Um, at times, I think maybe there's a little too much focus on survival. Like Kim is constantly going hungry. Like you're constantly like, boy, I need to, I need to find food or Kim's going to pass out, but you don't die. You just sort of get reset to home and, uh, you're, you're fine. So it, it, it's interesting because I'm not sure I'd call it a great game and it might be too early to pronounce a verdict one way or the other, but I, I think as, as an adaptation, from from an, an uh, from a fairly singular work of literature into a game, it's a pretty impressive stab at it, uh, and it's something I would recommend to people who are looking for something like a little bit off the beaten path. Yeah, this sounds great. I, I'm not I, I'm, familiar. I'm not that familiar with the source material, so this sounds like a kind of a cool way to uh, experience it. Perhaps I'm sort of trying to picture it in my head, and I'm wondering. Are you are you like navigating space or are we dealing with something that's more of like an 80 days type experience here? You are navigating space. Uh, it's from top down. Uh, it looks all like hand drawn and or hand painted. Mm. Uh, there's not tons of frames to the animation. So like sure. Kim has this really stylized like when he's running, uh, he goes from all the way stretched out, you know, two two feet massively apart, <laughs> one sure. out in front, one in the, in the back. Yeah. And then he contracts into a little circle. Uh, when he's standing still, uh, it's just a little like a mop of hair. Uh, but yeah, it, you're navigating these these little like these little set it these little sets, right? So if you're on the road, uh, time passes in the overworld, and then you are it's sort of like Fallout, right? Where going the old Fallout games, going from one grid square to the next. Uh, on the tactical map, you'd just be on the small little area, uh, but then to get from one grid space to another required like. Uh, a long walk in the overworld. So that's that's kind of how that works uh, here. Uh, it, it's very much a you are going around talking to people in physical space, and occasionally when things get dicey, you go into stealth mode and uh, you know maybe steal something from from a bazaar or <laughs> or break into someone's house. Uh, but you lose merit if you do this because Kim's fundamentally not a dick. Um, <laughs> so like he's not he's not averse to like doing stuff that's shady, but at the same time like. The interesting thing about this game, and an interesting thing about the book, as a matter of fact, given like Kipling's reputation as sort of the the poet laureate of colonialism, uh, is that there are racial assumptions baked into it that the game sort of steps around. Uh, it doesn't sort of parrot uh, some of Kipling's more uh, dated phrasing. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, both the game and the book are fundamentally about someone who just like loves people like is, is excited by the world and excited by the, the weird confluence of, of cultures and influences that exist along this, this strip of, of, uh, of Asia. And that comes through loud and clear here. And it's, it's really kind of delightful. Do you ever get to play Kim's game? 
if if you remember that from the book at all, which is looking at things and then figuring out which has been added and which has been taken away. <laughs> it's sort of like highlights, but that's a thing that Kim did in the book. Do you ever get to do something like that? Uh, not yet, but I'm like, so the thing is I played a fair bit of the game, Yeah, but a few of the things that have happened to me just recently are really kind of early events in the book. So I'm not, okay. you know, but you, I have not played Kim's game. Uh, on the other hand, I have had a run in with like the Irish regiment. Uh, oh, sure. Where you learn that like, oh, Kim is actually short for Kimball. And it's you, you learn that this this Indian kid you've been spending the whole game with is he's actually not fully Indian. He's, he's also he's also the son of colonial troops. Uh, so, yeah, you, you don't play that game, but there's also there is a thread running through it of he's being educated as a spy uh, from time to time. And oh, to him, right. it's all fun and games. But there are people with an interest in that. Nice. That seems extremely cool. I, I would like to try this out. Awesome. Uh, so with that, I think it's time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends. Thank you so much, Heather, for being here with us. We really, really appreciate it. We love your perspective. I love your work. I work with you, you know, at Zam and so on and so forth. But do you want to tell people where they can find you and find your work? Um, sure. First off, let me just say thank you for having me. It's It was amazing. I, like It just sort of happened. And it's super great that I, I was allowed to do this, that you let me in to enjoy your wonderful company. Um, oh, if you. people want to find my stuff, I can be found on Twitter at, at TransGamerThink. My website is TransGamerThoughts.com. Look on a website. Uh, I tend to freelance a lot. <laughs> look on, look on Giant Bomb. Look at Zam. I'm, I'm, I've started doing weekly write-ups of Game of Thrones. Yes, you so have. if that is your thing, I will talk to you about all of your Game of Thrones needs. Nice, awesome. Well, again, thank you so so much. This has been amazing, and uh, come back anytime. <laughs> Uh, so this episode of Idle Weekend was produced by Chris Remo and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show at idleweekend.net. Send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. And you, if you are enjoying our show, if you're having a good time, if you like having us in your ears, please do go and rate us on iTunes, rate us in the place where you found us. And, uh, thank you so, so much, uh, for, for showing up, for listening to us. And of course, you can always tell a friend. We, we appreciate that so much. It helps us out, uh, and it helps us keep doing this show. So thank you all for listening. Uh, to keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. For Rob Zachney and this week for Heather Alexandra, this is Danielle Riendo wishing you the finest of Idle Weekends. That was a blast. Yeah, that was so...